Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network, for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. And once again, as so often happens in the liturgical calendar of the Eastern churches, we have a rich, multi-layered week ahead of us. And also, we're in the midst of it as well. We are in the midst of a preparation for the great feast of the Dormition of the Mother of God. In the Western church, of course, it is called the Assumption. And I say that we're in the midst of a preparation because we enter into a fasting period, which occurs two weeks before August 15th, the Feast of the Assumption or the Dormition itself. And that feast is preceded, like all feasts, great feasts in the Eastern churches, with a period of penance. In other words, we clean house. We go to confession, most importantly, and we fast and we pray. So it's a two-week preparation. And during that time, we often will pray a wonderful service called the Paraclesis service, which means an office of consolation. It's where we cry out to Mother of God for her help for our broken, disordered passions, for sickness, any kind of trouble and trial and tribulation we are in. And we do so not only on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of the world itself. And I would say the way the world is going, we definitely need to cry out to our mother for protection because we children, we children are in trouble. We children are, are hurting each other. We children are shedding a lot of tears. And so where does a child go? When children are fighting and hurting each other, they run to mommy, don't they? And mommy, of course, ultimately takes the matter to daddy. And then daddy sets it all in order. But first we go to mommy. So I think that to turn to the mother of God during this time, and how, in whatever way you would like to do it as listeners, perhaps if you're not Eastern Catholic per se, you would do it in other ways, the rosary or any other kind of devotion, especially to the mother of God. Prepare, prepare with us all, the church East and West, for this great feast of the Dormition, as we say in the Eastern churches, or of the Assumption of the Mother of God. We call it Dormition in the Eastern churches because Dormition, like the word Dormire, Dormire, Dorm, to sleep, means that 
her death is likened to something like a falling asleep in the Lord, a kind of a gentle, integrated, whole passing into eternal life, body and soul together, without tribulation, without that separation of body and soul as we know it because of original sin. She was without sin. She was the ever-virgin, the sinless one, blessed among women. And so she entered into eternal life, the mother of God did, in the way that was destined for Eve, and even a way that's even better as a result of Christ's redemption. When he died on the cross and rose, he gave us an even better destiny. There was a great destiny ahead for Adam and Eve and for all of us. And Christ's redemption, Christ coming into the world, brings us back to that, captures an echo of that, but yet takes us even beyond to something even greater. Isn't that amazing? This is how God responds to our ultimate insult to him, our ultimate disobedience. He says, I'll show you. I'll come down there and I'll show you something even better than I originally planned. What a God, huh? What a loving God. And we see that. We see that testified in the life and the passing into eternal life of the mother of God. Speaking of this great feast coming up of the Dormition of the Mother of God, there's a wonderful pilgrimage hosted by the monks of Holy Resurrection Monastery in St. Nanjas, Wisconsin, and that's coming up on Saturday, August 16th. And you can find out about that by going to this website, hrmonline.org, hrmonline.org, a pilgrimage to the Holy Resurrection Monastery for the Feast of the Dormition or the Assumption of the Mother of God. Highly recommend it, hrmonline.org. Amidst this preparation, though, we have another great feast day, one of my favorites, very, very significant one in the Eastern churches. It's the feast of our Lord's Transfiguration on Mount Tabor. This is where he went on top of the mountain, Tabor, and in front of Peter, James, and John, he shone brilliantly. What he showed them was his divinity, the greatness of his divinity, the brilliance of his divinity, and also the greatness, beauty, splendor of his humanity, which in turn means that the apostles saw their humanity, the real meaning of their humanity, what is really meant to be and where it will be one day, gloriously transfigured. That's why we call this the Feast of the Transfiguration. So you see what's happening here in the liturgical calendar, something really brilliant. We see in the Mother of God and in Christ Not only the original plan for us, the beauty of that original plan had we not sinned, but also our ultimate destiny, our bodies and souls together, intact again, but gloriously transfigured. And both these feast days present that to us as a great hope, a great testimony, a great proof. And so they're very, very rich, very colorful feast days. Related to that, I want to speak to you a little bit about something you probably hear, you do hear on this program from time to time, that is Speaking of Mount Tabor, Tabor Life, the Tabor Life Institute. That's what I am a member of. And what we do with the Tabor Life Institute, based upon this feast, this event of our Lord's Transfiguration, where he shone the glory of what it is to be human, we teach and instruct and try, hopefully try to witness in our own lives and as an organization this transfigured ultimate meaning of the human person, especially in the area of relationships, of family, human sexuality, what it is to be man and woman, gloriously man, gloriously woman. We tackle all the hot-button issues in a way that's very, very integrated 
we bring in that liturgical, Eucharistic worldview to all these issues that are such a difficult, difficult thing for our world to grasp today, even for a lot of Catholics or Orthodox Christians to grasp. What does the church really mean when it's against this particular thing or for that particular thing when it comes to moral issues? Well, our Tabor Life Institute does all that, and we do it in any way you would like. We do it as a conference, we do it as a seminar, personal counseling, single people, married couples, you name it, we do it, even children and teenagers. And we have a wide, deep variety of speakers and presentations. So this is not just an advertisement. This is something that I'm bringing to your attention in light of this feast of Mount Tabor, the feast that happened on Mount Tabor, the transfiguration of our Lord, because it is upon that feast and the meaning of that event that we base this work of the Tabor Life Institute. To contact us, to utilize our services, simply go to our website, taborlife.org. That's taborlife.org. You can email us too at taborlife at earthlink.net, taborlife at earthlink.net. In fact, that's the email I prefer to use for many of your questions. Many people ask me questions about these kinds of issues, sometimes very sensitive issues, and I'm more than happy to try to answer them for you. So that email is taborlife at earthlink.net. As always, the liturgical text of any feast day in the Eastern churches presents the meaning, the theology. Our text, what we say in church, or should say what we chant in church, is our theology. Our theology is our chant and our prayer. Our prayer is our chant and theology. In the Feast of the Transfiguration, we will sing and chant prayers like this. Having revealed a small ray of your divinity to those who climb the mountain with you, O Savior, You made them partakers of your boundless glory. Therefore, they cried out in awe to you. It is good for us to be here. Together with them, we shall forever praise you, O Christ our Savior, who was transfigured for us. Now, did you catch that? It says in the prayer, you made them partakers of your boundless glory. Imagine, that is the destiny that our Lord has for us. That was his original intention in creating us, too, for that we will partake of his own glory not as divine, but we would be, as the saints would say in the Eastern churches, we would become partakers of his divine nature, as though we're grafted onto his very nature. This is how close, how close God wants us to become ultimately with him. Now, we can't become God in his essence, of course, but we can be grafted on. I'm using perhaps a poor analogy, but no analogy can possibly capture so great a mystery. But to be grafted on, to become partakers of the divine nature, as it says in the epistle to St. Peter in the scripture and also in the liturgical text. This is our destiny. What a beautiful, marvelous destiny this is. And it was all revealed to them in this moment on Mount Tabor. Here's another great part of our text that we pray. O Christ, you have clothed yourself completely in the nature of Adam, thereby refashioning what had been corrupted. Through your becoming human, you transfigured and glorified our nature. You see that? He glorified our nature. So when Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain with Christ, and they were literally knocked off their feet, knocked onto their face. You see that in the icon of the transfiguration. They are all have their hands up to their face, and they're laying on the ground. They're just, you can see they're just knocked over. They're just bowled over by what they're seeing. They're witnessing Christ's divinity, which is more than any human being can handle. So of course, it knocks them off their feet. Not in a bad way, but in a glorious way. But they also, as I mentioned, and as the prayers mentioned, they partook of and witnessed 
the glory of his humanity, which means they saw mirrored in Christ's transfiguration their own humanity, the meaning of their own humanity. And that's why they said, let us build tents here. They wanted to stay here. They wanted this moment to last. But Christ told them as he came down the mountain, he told them about what was to come, and that was going to be his suffering and death, which, of course, they did not fully understand. But he gave them a glimpse of his glory so that they would be encouraged. They would remember that thought when things got tough. And so he told them, no, we can't stay here. I, I did this for you so that you would be encouraged and emboldened. Something would stay with you after you see something that you're not going to understand, you're not going to like. So Christ was preparing them by showing them his divinity, the glory of his divinity, and the glory of his humanness, which again, as I mentioned, is the glory of the apostles' humanness as well, and your humanness and mine. Remember, we remain in the image likeness of God. That's the only truth we can say about the human person. Everything else is a lie. Everything else is a foreign intrusion. And sometimes we tend to define our humanness by what is negative. You know, when we make mistakes, we sin, we even end up in jail, as has happened to even some of our devoted listeners. And that's why we're happy they are listening to us, that regardless of all that, that does not define us. Sitting in jail, committing sin, making mistakes, causing accidents, messing up in any way is not human. It has become part of our human reality, reality of our existence, but it's not, per se, human. Foreign intrusions. We were made to be perfect, to be glorious, and one day we will be that again, body and soul intact, gloriously transfigured. And how do we know? Because of feast days like this and also the one coming up, the Dormition or the Assumption of the Mother of God. So always remember, especially those of you who are good friends who are serving some time in jail and who do keep in close touch with us, remember the truth about you is you remain the image and likeness of God. And if you have that vision, that image of yourself and of every other human being, and you live according to that, then you will be living honestly. You'll be living the way God intended you and all of us to live. And anything less than that is a lie. Reject it. Reject it. And embrace the truth of being human as witnessed by Christ on Mount Tabor. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. I'm Father Thomas Loya, and I'm inviting you to the best ever Prairie Fest. Friday through Sunday, August 8th through the 10th. Friday night, it's Maggie Speaks. I'm back and I'm holding, she's smiling, she's living, she's golden, she lives for me. Then Sunday evening at 7.30, Prairie Fest celebrates 50 years of the Beatles and the British invasion with American English. It was 20 years ago today, such a ripper took the band to play. Then, on Sunday, August 10th, at Prairie Fest, polka all day long. 
At 11 a.m., Polka Generations starts the day, followed by Eddie Carosa Jr. and the boys from Illinois. Local favorite Harvest Moon plays on Saturday at 4. Prairie Fest with free admission, food, $10,000 raffle, children's games, and so much more. On the Prairie at Annunciation Parish, 14610 Wheel Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Details at ByzantineCatholic.com. Prairie Fest, Friday through Sunday, August 8th through the 10th. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. A special hello to many of our good friends listening, especially out in California, people like Sonia, our good friend up in Saginaw, Michigan, Charles Cook, and also all those, as I mentioned before, our special friends are listening to us while living and serving time in prison. You are on our prayers, and we appreciate very much your letters and cards and, and well wishes and your prayers. Remember, we always remember the truth about us is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. You need not know anything more. Everything else is a foreign intrusion. So live by that vision. And that is what this feast day is about. This is why in the church we have these feast days and why we immerse ourselves in them in such deep and elaborate ways. For example, on the Feast of Transfiguration, we have this beautiful custom where we bring fruit into the church and vegetables and we bless them because it's the harvest time, but it also makes us mindful of this process of transfiguration. Think about it. A very innocuous little seed grows and becomes this fruitful vine or this fruitful plant that produces succulent fruits and vegetables that nourish us. It's a wonderful metaphor for the transfiguration. So the reason we immerse ourselves in these feast days and the way that we do is to immerse ourselves in the truth of who we are, the truth of life, to actually feel that, to taste that, it's got to be palpable. It's got to be part of our phenomenological experience, to use a big philosophical term. In other words, it has to be real to us. We have to really believe in and live according to that vision. And that's why liturgy, church, is so critical to our well-being, the well-being of the world, because it is in liturgy that we get this vision. And in the liturgical life of the church, the feast days of the church, it immerses us. It's not just observing an obligation or observing a historical reality. It's about immersing ourselves and changing ourselves through that immersion into reality. It's the touchstone. It's the home base. And that's why staying close to church and the prayers of the church, the iconography, the teachings, the, the liturgy is absolutely crucial. What, what a world it would be if we all were very, very liturgical. We lived our lives according to that rhythm, according to that vision. That's why I really get very excited about this particular feast day. I love them all, but this one in particular is one of my favorites. Now, there's an interesting resource that I've mentioned on the program a number of times, and that resource is called the Prologue from Okrid, or in other words, the Synaxarian. What it is, is a book that has some meditations and information on the saint or the feast day of each day of the liturgical calendar year. This is, I think, a must for every home, especially homes where there's a family that has children and grandchildren, grandma, grandfather, whoever. In other words, it's great for the home. And the reason why it's great for the home is because it's one of those things that a family should sit around and spend some time reading, preferably at the family meal. There has to be, first of all, there has to be a family meal, which is sometimes unfortunately scarce today. But make that part of your, what we call the domestic church in the Eastern churches. It's a concept that we heard way back from St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century, where 
What goes on in church is reflected in what goes on in our homes. And in our homes, what do we do? That's like church. Well, one of the things we do is we gather together for a meal, which is already reminiscent of the Eucharist. We read some things that are inspiring, which is reminiscent of hearing the Word of God in church. And we reflect on those things, and we draw closer as a family, as a household. One of those resources to use for that is this prologue from Okrit, or in other words, the Synaxarian. It has accounts of the saints, but also has wonderful meditations. And there's a couple of interesting meditations for this Feast of the Transfiguration. So I'm going to read from this book, just as every family ought to be reading from it this coming week during the Feast of the Transfiguration. It says here, it asks the question, actually, an interesting question. It gives an interesting answer. Why did the Lord not reveal his glory on Tabor before all the disciples, but only before three, Peter, James, and John? First, because he himself had given the law through Moses. At the mouth of two witnesses, or of three, shall the matter be established. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 19. Three witnesses were then enough. There was, though, a special reason for choosing these three disciples. The three of them represented the three chief virtues. Peter represented faith, for he was the first to proclaim his faith in Christ as the Son of God. James represented hope, for it was with hope in the promise of Christ that he was the first to lay down his life for the Lord, being the first killed by the Jews. John represented love, for he lay on the Lord's breast and stayed beneath the Lord's cross till the end. God is not the God of the many, but the God of the chosen. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. God has often valued one faithful man more highly than a whole people. On several occasions, he intended to exterminate the Jewish people, but at the prayers of righteous Moses, he left the people alive. God hearkened to Elias, more than to all the royalty of the faithless Ahab. At the prayers of one man, God often saved both towns and men. Thus, the sinful town of Eustug, which would have been destroyed by fire and hail if the one righteous man in St. Procorbus the fool for Christ had not saved it by his prayers. Now, there's actually another reference, too. Think of the story of Jonah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Remember the town of Nineveh? God was going to destroy that town because of its evil. But the whole town put on sackcloth and ashes and did repentance, fasted, and prayed. And God stayed his hand. He saved the town. In fact, Jonah didn't like that because he wanted to be punished. But God had other plans. So, you see, what could happen here, as the Synaxarian points out, there are certain people that God for his own reasons, in his own wisdom, raises up or chooses to speak through, and they have greater promise than others. Now, that doesn't mean that God favors. We might see it that way. But we have to remember God obviously wants all to be saved. But he does raise up certain ones through which he will do special things or communicate special messages through. It's just the way God works. He wants all to be saved. He loves us all. But there are certain ones that he has designated for certain special purposes. And in this case, for the Feast of the Transfiguration, he brings once again around him, among all the apostles, he brings these three, Peter, James, and John. He would do that on several occasions, but certainly on Mount Tabor. And as we hear, as we see from this reflection in the Synaxarian, the reason he may have done that was because they represented faith, hope, and love, the three great virtues. 
You see how we read back into things and the events in the Eastern churches? In the icon of the Transfiguration, as I mentioned before, you see these three, Peter, James, and John, and they're knocked off their feet, literally, and they have their hands up to their face. Recently, I was giving a tour of my church. I was referring to that icon on the wall, and someone asked me, why are their hands up to their face like that? I said, ah, it's a good question. In iconography, whenever you have a hand up to the face like that, it can mean several things. One of those things it means is, first of all, a dismay or an inability to comprehend a mystery. It's as though our senses are not capable of comprehending or taking in. So their hands will cover their ears, their eyes, their mouth. They will cover their senses. So this is symbolic of being in the presence of so great a mystery that cannot be spoken of. We can hardly really take it in through our ears or our eyes. And at the same time, there is an acceptance of that through faith. There's something similar to that in the icon of the crucifixion, and it's seen in the mother of Jesus, the mother of God, the Virgin Mary. She stands at the foot of the cross, and one hand is up to her face. In that dismay, in that, in that striving to try to comprehend this great mystery of the death of her innocent son. At the same time, in her other hand, it, it gestures. She gestures with her other hand to us as if she's gesturing to us towards Christ, where it's showing her acceptance, her resignation. And, and in that, she is saying to us, we must accept and understand this mystery of Christ's death and resurrection. So there is lots of meaning in the use of the hands in iconography. So the apostles in this icon are shown with their hands to their face, and I mentioned what that's about. They're falling on their face because this is such a great mystery. But also, on either side of Christ, there appears in the icon, as there is in the scene in the Scripture, Elijah, the great prophet, and Moses. And they're seen conversing with Christ. They're on either side of him, and they're seen conversing with him. And the idea here is that this transfiguration, this revelation of Christ, is making everything known. So Elijah, who symbolizes all of the prophets, remember the Old Testament is about the law and the prophets. So the law is symbolized by Moses, the prophets by Elijah. And they're discussing it with him as though everything has come to light now in Christ's transfiguration. And they were the only two. Once again, we see this favoritism, if you want to say it that way, by God, but for a very, very specific purpose, for his own purposes and for our good. So of all the prophets and all the people law, it's Moses and Elijah on either side of Christ in the icon. And below him, of course, Peter, James, and John among all the disciples. And they're conversing with Christ about this great mystery. What it is showing is that the revelation of, of Christ and the transfiguration is bringing to a certain completion and explanation the why behind all that came before Christ. In other words, the law and the prophets were all about Christ. And now that's all beginning to come to revelation, to fulfillment, especially as Christ anticipates when he's on Mount Tabor, his death and resurrection, and then eventually the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. So what's happening is everything that came before is coming to fruition, coming to culmination and fulfillment. It's, in a sense, it's the why behind it all. And that's why Moses and Elijah, among all the people in the Bible, are there on either side of Christ in that glorious, glorious moment of his transfiguration and in that glorious depiction in the icon. I do indeed hope that you will have a most blessed feast of the transfiguration and also looking forward to the great feast of the Dormition or the Assumption of the Mother of God. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East.
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media.